1: Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha.
0: And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And today, we are so, so excited and a little nervous to be joined by the amazing award-winning activist, author, and podcaster, Raquel Willis. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule, Raquel.
3: (laughs) Of course. Well, thank you for having me. I feel like I'm returning home, in a sense, to Sminty. Yes,
0: Yes, (laughs) because you have been on Sminty before. We were just talking about this. And uh, we are going to talk about it a bit more because you did work at How Stuff Works as it was at the time. You were on Smency when it was Kristen and Caroline. Mm-hmm. You've been in Atlanta, which is where Samantha and I live. Yeah, And we're very excited to see you again on an upcoming book tour. Yeah. But for the listeners... We, As we were just discussing off mic, Mm -hmm. you've done a lot since then. (laughs) You've grown (laughs) a lot as a person, but also done a lot since then. And that was a very simplified introduction I gave you. Can you introduce yourself to our audience, please?
3: Yes. Well, hello, Sminty fam. I am Raquel Willis. I am a Black trans activist, now author and media strategist. And so much of my work is dedicated to honoring the dignity of folks on the margins, which of course means women and folks of varying gender experiences, folks of color, and on and on. Um, And I'm from Augusta, Georgia, so I'm a Georgia girl. We were joking (laughs) about my accent coming in and out. It's because I've lived in a bunch of different places since I started um, back in 2013 with a media and journalism career. Um, But I'm so glad to be on this amazing platform again. (laughs) Yay! We're so glad you are
1: on. I know we, Annie and I, have had like a little dream list of people we wanted back on the show or on the show Mm. and you were on my list and I'm like, it's finally happening. As I told you previously, I'm a little intimidated, and as most of our listeners know, when I get intimidated, I start stuttering or talking very fast, so go ahead and put that as a warning to everyone listening as well as to you. Okay. I'm very professional. Of course. I'm very professional, obviously. (laughs) Ah, uh, but you and I went to UGA mm-hmm. as well. So you and I are alums in that as well. And yeah. as I was reading parts of your book, I was like, "Oh, this is very familiar. Oh really Between, okay. you're you speaking about East Point and it's speaking about UGA. And I'm like, oh yeah, ok. ok. I kind of kind of I kind of get this,
3: <laughs> yes. I mean, u g a, what a time. So, um, yeah, so I went to school at the University of Georgia, studied journalism, and had a minor in women's studies. Picked that up along <laughs> the way. And it's so <laughs> funny that my uncovering of my feminism happened in at college alongside my coming into my womanhood as a trans person. So it's interesting. I mean, I I really had kind of these teachers that were phenomenal. I mean, it was folks like uh, Dr. Nicole Ray, Cecilia Herlez at the University of Georgia, Blaise Parker, so many more. And then I also, on the journalism side, had these phenomenal Black um, women writers like the late Valerie Boyd, unfortunately, she passed last year, and um, Cynthia Tucker of uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution fame. So I was surrounded by, like, a crew of baddies, if I must say so myself, (laughs) in person. But then through the written word, I mean, it was Black feminists like Patricia Hill Collins. It was Angela Davis. It was Bell Hooks. It was trans writers and scholars like Susan Stryker and Julia Serrano of Whipping Girl fame, who really gave me a lens around my experience as a trans woman. So... I was like well yoked, I guess, at that time to understand (laughs) systems of oppression. Yeah,
1: which is amazing because I will say when I started that story with you, I was like a little nervous because UGA, you can go either way. You You can can. have some of the best experiences. You can have some of the worst experiences. It's an up and down of whether or not you find your crew. Um, And it can be a hit and miss, especially in a Southern university uh, that is dated with a lot of unfortunate uh, history, but good history, but changes as well. So I was like, yes, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, but,
3: you know, <laughs> I think that's the story of the South, right? Is like so often yeah. we talk about the struggle, but we forget that so much of the resilience and the resistance is also a part of that story. And actually, right. we should elevate that maybe more than some of the struggles that right. happened so so yeah I feel you <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah I love that and um you've touched on so many things that I want to come back and talk about but I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves yeah. here
3: I'm I'm the one that often does that so <laughs>
0: <laughs> we do that too you're you're right with this
3: um, I get very excited
0: <laughs> yes uh we received a copy of your book the cover is beautiful I want to talk about that in a second too. <laughs> the writing is beautiful you do su- such a good job of like showcasing kind of the arc of your life from the South and then everything else that you've done since then. But can you tell us and the listeners uh, what the book is about?
3: Yes, yeah, so the risk it takes to bloom on life and liberation is, like you said, Annie, it's about my experience growing up in the South with a lot of traditionalism. I come from a very kind of classic Black Southern family. Um, Middle class. So there was also that component, but we were also very Catholic. I mean, devout Catholic sat in the front pew every Sunday, all of that. (laughs) So it, it was a lot of wading through these expectations of who I was supposed to be. And so I talked very candidly about my relationship with my father, who was very loving and very, very much a fixture in my life and also in that love so much of it was um about rearing me in a certain way to embody particularly black masculinity which was not really in the cards for me whether i tried or didn't try i was just i was bullied you know it's called so many names and along the way realized i was different And so that's kind of the first half of the book is like you get that journey all the way through what you mentioned, Samantha, me finding my trans womanhood in college. And then the kind of the second big chunk of the book is okay, well, as a Black trans woman now, what kind of world is kind of emerging? Um, for me, as someone embarking on a journalism and media career, but also has this passion for social justice. Oh, and we're straddling the Obama and Trump eras. Oh, and Mm -hmm. trans visibility is on the rise. Oh, and the movement for Black Lives is happening. And then there's this feminist collective awakening happening with the unfortunate uh, ascension of Donald Trump. So all of that Is kind of packed into the second part of the book.
0: Yes. And it's a lot. Like I was reading it, I was like, (laughs) wow, (laughs) Raquel, you have done so much. You have been all over and you're so open with your stories um, and so sharing and so vulnerable. Like you talk about really um, what could be like very painful things. Uh, You did say that some of it was therapeutic, but for instance, you talked about your coming out to your family and how mm-hmm. that sort of spread and like you 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 started with your immediate family and then like later <laughs> other people but how how was that for you like how was sharing those stories for you
3: yeah well i i think at this point you know maybe a lot of people well i won't say a lot cuz there's still a lot of americans in particular who say they don't know a trans person um but we kind of have this idea of, like, what coming out looks like in general um, or inviting in, as some folks are saying now. But I think people forget, you know, I think they're, they're like, OK, well, you're 32. Why are you writing a memoir? Like, what have you experienced? And as you said, Annie, it's been a lot. And I'm also an <laughs> overthinker. So those two put together, <laughs> you get a book or you get a memoir. Um, uh-huh. But then Also... I think people forget that I was kind of coming into my career as a Black trans woman, like, literally two months before um, Orange is the New Black premiered with Laverne Cox, the amazing, who did an amazing conversation for my launch event in New York, which, oh my God, big moment. But that premiered two months after I graduated. So I was already kind of navigating um, being a Black trans woman in the world before this kind of visibility era started to take off. And so it was important to kind of showcase my personal trajectory within kind of this uh, change in consciousness collectively around in public education and political education around trans folks' existence. So that's been a thing. I think also I've been blessed to meet so many empowering folks along the way. I mean, whether it was LGBTQ students invested in making our campus um, more habitable at the University of Georgia to Black queer and trans activists and organizers in Atlanta who were fighting against everything from mass incarceration to police brutality and on and on. To folks at Transgender Law Center, who were working on so many different initiatives on a national level to make trans folks safe. On to working at Out Magazine, where an amazing uh, group of folks came together, which I was so proud to be a part of, to kind of shift narratives around the LGBTQ community. And so one of the things I think that has been a feature so much of my career has been in spaces with folks invested in showing the breadth of experiences on the margins.
1: Yeah. And, you know, as you're speaking of this, obviously you are a writer. Like, everything you say has so many things that you can picture with this. Uh, your book was very much the same. You are a storyteller. Oh. Honestly, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the Southern Gothic that I love to read because of the tales of Augusta and you're growing <laughs> up. Very Southern mm-hmm. uh, level of community, which was familiar in that, yeah, this is Georgia. This is This is what Georgia looks like in growing up with a family that is surrounding you, that sweet tea, that that description of your dinner at the very beginning. I was like, yeah, I know that. (laughs) I know what you're talking about. You know, the puckering of the lips from being so sweet, that whole level, like you're you're an obvious writer in in all of that. As you tell your story, how did this process go for you? Because Hmm. not only it is a memoir, but it is a story. It is a novel in itself. How did you do all of this writing? What was your thought process as you were doing
3: it? Well, shout out to my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, yes, I ended up uh, finding a new therapist during the process because um, I kind of had a, a break between one that I had a, a while ago and um, we just had some really important conversations. Um, but I, I think that that kind of dovetailed with just kind of the emotional experience of, of talking about these stories. I mean, so many of us get our lives down to talking points, you know? And so it's like, this happened. I came out at 14 as gay to my parents and then came out at school and then found my transness in college and all of this stuff. And then I was writer here at the small town newspaper. And, you know, and so it's the talking points. And I think sometimes... Getting our stories down to those little slivers acts as a shield for us to not uh, dig into the deeper emotions of, like, trauma, of, like, the things that have pushed us to seek validation in a certain way. I mean, one of the things that was important to kind of get a grip on is, like, okay, in this career that I've built, you know, what am I building it for, and and at the heart of some of it, which I, I've been unpacking with my therapist, is like, I felt like I had to present myself in a certain package to make up for those things that made me more marginalized in our society. And so I dealt with the expectations of, you know, not being able to build this kind of palatable life that maybe my parents hoped I would have had and kind of shattering that and being like it's okay for me to exist um but also i don't have to work and achieve to make up for those things those things are brilliantly beautiful as well my blackness my transness my queerness my womanhood my southernness as well those are those are beautiful things that i don't have to work despite of, right? Or or in spite of. Um, I'm working in this way because of those things. So that was kind of at the heart of it. I mean, I had to have hard conversations with family, with former partners and friends, especially for these moments where I, I talk about tension and conflict. Because I really... Believed in trying to tell my story in a way that it didn't infringe on other people's lives, right? so i I also wanted them to be able to have their stories while I also told my story from my vantage point. And I wanted that to be clear.
0: I love that because i i we've been talking about that, um just being on this podcast by nature of like, I'll tell a story, and I know like if it gets out to my family, oh. You know, (laughs) I don't know how that's going to go. I think that's great that you reached out to people and had those hard conversations because telling such a story like this is so personal.
3: And there's power in it, right? Like there's power in being a storyteller and telling it on this level, which you you just spoke to for yourself, right? And I had a duty to not move from a place from that place of hurt and harm and trauma to not move from a place of vengeance right and and which is Mm -hmm. something that people can easily do when they have a platform we see it all the time (laughs)
0: yes (laughs) yes we do this episode is brought to you by pnc bank who believes
1: some things in life should be boring
2: So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: Another thing I really loved, because earlier you were mentioning all of these amazing mentors that you had, but you also speak about as you were earlier about like students or organizations or just like being on like a Yahoo group and finding people (laughs) that way and finding mentors that way. And I really love that because I do think Samantha and I both grew up in small towns in the South. I do think like finding that can be so eye opening of like, oh wait, (laughs) wait, this is making so much sense to me. So can you talk about that, kind of the power of finding your community, of finding these mentors?
3: Yeah, uh, Annie, thank you for bringing that up. I mean, it's it's so interesting to think about because it, it, life just kind of unfolds sometimes, especially when you're young. But I first found the LGBTQ community through the computer screen, right? Which is not weird now because of <laughs> social media and everything. But in the early 2000s, I mean, the internet was a wilderness, you know, like the rabbit <laughs> holes you could go down. There is something that I think younger folks may not be able to, uh, to understand. But I found community through teen forums where we would talk about our experiences, whether it was from puberty and body changes and everything, you know, all of those awkward things we could never talk about in, in our IRL, right, in real life, as we say, <laughs> um but then also in yahoo chat rooms as you said and in chat rooms on AOL instant messenger aim if you will <laughs> that was kind of the experience that i had that helps me understand oh there are other lgbtq people out there and i'm not alone and i'm just i'm just different in this context and so there are folks i can find so that was a sense of community And then going off to the University of Georgia, as you said, that was so eye-opening because I had never seen queer and trans people like me who were so open about it, you know? And so that was beautiful. I met trans people for the first time, really, who were living openly. And that kind of shifted my mindset as well. Um, Back in Augusta, there were other gay and bi folks but most of them were in the closet or most of them, did, I guess, didn't wear it on their sleeve, maybe in the ways that I did. And I don't think I really did, but I was just outspoken about it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, those early moments of community were so key. And I think about how important it is for young people. You know, I young queer and trans people around the country are facing upwards of 600 pieces of anti-LGBTQ legislation introduced in the year 2023, according to the ACLU. And the uh, unfortunate thing is like, while we've had this rise in visibility for particularly trans folks, that also has made us more of a target to particularly conservative folks. Um, so we see these politicians, we see... A washed up YA fantasy author coming after trans people. We see washed up comedians coming after trans people. We see washed up rappers and other folks coming after trans people. I think you see the pattern. Trans trans people <laughs> yeah. make the haters uh, relevant again in a way. So <laughs> So I say all that to say that I, I think it's important for young people across the board on the margins to have opportunities to build community, because there's a lot of healing that can come with being surrounded by folks that you can compare and contrast the notes of your life with.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree so much. I, I hate, like I've told this story before, but when I was in seventh grade, I, I was like, maybe I'm gay. And then I like mm. prayed to God like I hope I'm not gay cuz I knew what it would mean like and I was so scared of it and I hate that I felt that way and I think that if I had had community of people like who even knew the terms like nobody even knew the words <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where I grew up <laughs> um, yeah that it would have meant so so much but that you said something that I wanted to come back to you cuz you've spoken about this before there is there has been this rise um in trans visibility, um, which is great, but you've also spoken about how that doesn't necessarily equate to vitality and that can't be the whole picture. Can you talk about
3: that? Yeah. I mean, the visibility piece, I, I, so let's get to the heart of it, right? There are people who are like, oh, well, we're always hearing about trans folks. I mean, I've seen on some comments for interviews I've done this week where people are like, I'm transed out. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, and a lot of it is people's anxieties around, and particularly cisgender people, that is folks who are not trans. It's their anxieties around not being able to be the default anymore. Because now that trans people have articulated our existence in a way and are empowered to own our stories, um, there are people who don't like the fact that they don't get the cookies of being seen as normal on that level of identity, right? We hear the same thing from white supremacists who have a problem with the diversity efforts, who have a problem with people of color being main characters in Marvel films and Disney films. It's because they have a problem with not being seen as the default. And and they don't want to interrogate that they are complicit in these systems of oppression that folks on the margins experience. And my thing is, I want to validate your discomfort. Because that is real. How you feel is real. But I will never concede that your discomfort in any way, as someone who is more privileged on a certain axis of oppression, deserves the approach that you take and and that it deserves the same or equal billing as the discrimination and the violence that folks on the margins experience. So when we're talking about trans folks being visible, it, it can't just be that you have this idea that we've got it made because you might see us on a TV screen or hear us on a radio or a podcast, or see us in a magazine. Do you understand that we still have high rates of uh, incarceration for Black people? trans folks in particular, high rates of suicidal ideation across the board regardless of race for trans and non-binary folks, particularly youth? Do you understand the barriers of healthcare? Oh, because people are trying to pass legislation to keep young people and adults from accessing what we call gender affirming care, which is really just healthcare. You know, so I, I think it's important for folks to understand that Visibility is great, but it often presents more issues when the material conditions have not changed for large swaths of a community on the margins.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of funny that, and I say this funny as in sarcastically, that the idea of just being seen, which is the visibility, to exist, and then to have one out of, what, a thousand other types of... uh gender ideas be there and that's the cause and the focus when in actuality is like no you just notice this one because it's unusual which is the unfortunate part Mm -hmm. is that it shouldn't be that this is rare this should just be on that level of uh the population like as is in reality it should be represented and yet, because it is unique, you are offended by something that is unique because we don't see enough of it, which is the conversation in itself. That, that should be the what we're focusing on, not the fact that they exist. It's like, what are you talking about? The reason we're talking about it is because more and more people are going after that one small group of population. Not even that small. is smaller than what you have heard before. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, all the attacks do not—the ratio is off. The amount of anti-trans bills to the population that just wants to exist doesn't make sense. Right. What it should be against, there should be more anti-cis white men bills, as we see in the statistics of it all. Should, should it not? Shouldn't the ratio be equal? I don't know. I say this as I'm just getting angry, in like just common sense of it. No, you're right. I
3: mean, come on, from the pulpit, honey, you was preaching, but you're you're right though. But the funny thing is when on the the opposite side, when folks see groups on the margins getting rights, so to speak, and it's really just protecting because the rights that we have are rights that are God given. If that's right. what you believe, should existed. they should already be a part of right. our existence. But protections for women, protections for LGBTQ plus folks, protection for people of color, immigrants, religious minorities and on. Folks who have more power and privilege in a way feel like, oh, well, if those protections are articulated, that means something is being taken from me. I mean, that's where we get all of this BS around the great replacement theory and all of this stuff, right? Is that there's this idea that people are taking your spot as the main character, particularly of the American story. But you still get to be a main character, honey, but you have to understand that you have the capacity to be both a hero and a villain, to be both an oppressor and be oppressed. And that's everyone across the board. And so who are you going to be in this moment? Because the information is there, honey.
1: And the information, including what you have written, uh, which, as you were talking earlier about uh, gender ideals and the fact that really people assume something's a norm, when in actuality, uh, you talked about the fact that we're all gender non-conforming in some way. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I thought about this earlier. I was like, because I'm not as 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 girly as I should be mm. in, co- in accordance to what people said girly should be. Um, and this is one of the reasons I had a fallout with religion in general because I wasn't kind and gracious. Like, not kind. I'm, I'm nice. I'm nice. But I'm not, like, <laughs> gentle. <laughs> I'm not looking to have 10,000 children. I'm not looking for marriage. I don't need uh, someone to lead me. Mm-hmm. I just want I just want to be. Just leave me yes. be, essentially. And that does not go in accordance to a lot of the religious things that I grew up with, which we talked about so often. Um, but you talk about how this idea that we're all gender nonconforming that is important and why your book is important for this
3: conversation. Mm.
1: Can you can you talk about that a bit more?
3: Yeah, well, when I, I talk about gender nonconformity, there's different levels, right? I think, in general, you know, we have to be having a conversation around how gender fails all of us. The citer- cis-heteropatriarchy and its expectations fail all of us. So, yes, I'm talking about my experience as a Black trans woman, but it's not so divorced from what cisgender men and boys experience around being told they literally can't cry without their validity being called into question or like the color pink or be affectionate or soft or sassy as the girls talk about on TikTok these days. But then on the other side, of course, cisgender women and girls are told exactly what you, you're saying, Samantha, that you can't be a strong, brilliant, capable leader. You can't be independent. You have to have your destiny attached to the domination of whatever random cishet man is beside you. <laughs> that is a gender <laughs> failure. Like that is a failure <laughs> of the cis patriarchy. And I think with trans and non-binary folks and queer folks and and folks who understand that they are gender nonconforming. those other folks have an opportunity to see us as windows of possibility in a, a world where we can all be a bit freer to like and live and love and navigate the world in the ways that we all deserve. And so that is a piece of it. Um, I, I think also in the book, I like to flesh out as well, in terms of how gender racialized gender experiences play out, right? Because there's a way also that people of color are inherently regarded as the other, and in fact, often seen as gender nonconforming too. So one of the experiences that I witnessed in the movement for Black Lives was that there was a decentering of a conversation around particularly patriarchal violence, you know? So the dominant frame was like, we can talk about state violence because that is easier, I think, or a smoother conversation to have because often we can talk about a white supremacist system, right? The, The criminal injustice system and on and on. But when we're talking about patriarchal violence, Well, now we're throwing in a whole bunch of nuance, right? Because then we have to be able to own that even as folks on the margins, whether you're Black or Indigenous or any other kind of of color, right, that you also can be an oppressor even within your own group in that way. And so what does that mean? And so I try to talk about that. I also love of course, talking about within feminism. We've had a long history of schisms and fissures between various factions. I mean, definitely it came to the fore in the second wave where, you know, we're talking about the lavender scare and the way that uh, lesbians and queer women were sidelined. Of course, Black women um, were sidelined and created their own feminisms. Uh, Chicana feminisms, third world feminisms, and so much more. But even before that, when we think about people like Elizabeth, Katie Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony, who are heralded as, you know, white feminists, pioneers, and heroines, they definitely turn their backs on particularly... Uh, Black folks at that time, they were in conversation with Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells Barnett and so many others. And when it seemed like it was going to be impossible to get women's suffrage as soon as they hoped for, because there was a prioritization of talking about, of course, emancipation from, oh, enslavement of Black Americans, they turned their backs on that cause. And so we have to be able to talk about even within our progressive spaces, so-called progressive spaces, systems of oppression have played out throughout time and continue to today.
0: And you do a great job of uh, breaking that down in your book. Like, honestly, Mm. I have all of these bullet points I want to ask (laughs) you about. And they're like, we don't have the time. I know. Because you talk about, you have conversations (laughs) about like dating and stealthing at work your experiences in activism which i do want to come back to at the end you do such a great i mean go buy the book uh go buy the book and read it i did want to discuss because the i have it right here the cover is so beautiful. Mm, um, can, thank you. <laughs> can you tell us? And you have a great story about the imagery of it um, yeah. and the and the title. Can you tell us about that?
3: Yeah. So the risk it takes to bloom uh, comes from this poem that I first heard from uh, at the top of an Alicia Keys album. So uh, the third album that she released, the Element of Freedom. At the beginning, she adapts this poem by a woman named Elizabeth Apple from the Bay Area, and it says, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. That was the original version. And then Alicia Keys remixed it and said to bloom. And I love that idea of the risk it takes to bloom because I thought of these moments that I'm chronically in my life Where I didn't know what lie on the other side of being vulnerable and being authentic, whether it was at 14 when I was figuring out how I was going to come out as gay to my parents or at 20 when I was trying to figure out how I was going to come out as trans to my family and the world or what kind of career I could have after I was so deeply impacted by the death by suicide of a young trans girl named Leela Alcorn in 2014, and on and on. So that idea of taking a risk and how that has played out beautifully throughout my life. I have no regrets whatsoever for anything, whether it was struggles and difficult times, moving through those things has allowed me to bloom. And I I know that blooming, of course, is not a one-time thing, just like I say revolution is not a one-time thing at the epilogue of the book. It's something that we are called to do over and over again. And I hope that we can be encouraged to do that by sharing our stories like the ones I'm trying to share in this book. Now, with the image, I was so proud to be able to bring on Texas Isaiah, who is a phenomenal photographer, who I know in community powerful Black trans masculine person who is constantly showing up, has a deep sense of self-determination and autonomy for Black trans folks, believes in Black trans power, and really hooked me up with this. And I was able to shoot it at a Black trans-led organization studio, Black Trans Films in the Arts here in New York. So there's a lot of power behind the creation of this image and the crew that came on as well. So many Black trans folks and Black queer folks made it possible.
0: I love how you described it of a tree. It was a magnolia tree
3: from your youth
0: and like the roots of it, but also the blooming of it.
3: Yes. So one of the early um, short stories I tell is... Um, about this magnolia tree in my backyard growing up, um, it was our, our neighbor's tree was kind of reaching over this fence, and I remember the petals of the flowers being, you know, powdery and fragrant, and, um, these creamy beige petals and the waxy green leaves, and I remember the sense of joy and, and pleasure in seeing these flowers, but also this, like, lightning boat of fear came, came and struck me because I knew that as someone being raised as a boy, I was not supposed to like flowers. And so I was not supposed to want to feel precious or beautiful or soft or deserving of affection. And so that is a theme that I return to throughout the book.
0: Yes. Another theme that you have throughout the book, is that you write letters mm-hmm. to the dead. And that kind of transitions really well into our next part, because you also, you're so busy, you have a Come podcast. Come on, transition. Sorry. <laughs> really right. good at them. I know, I'm really good. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you also have a podcast coming out. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is called Afterlives, The laylene Polanco Story. And one of the letters you have in the book is to Layleen. Yeah. So can you tell us about this podcast?
3: Yeah, so Lailene Polanco um, was a 27-year-old Afro-Latina uh, transgender woman who died in Rikers' custody in June of 2019. I first heard about her story from a dear friend and fellow organizer, Eliel Cruz, who at that time was working at the Anti-Violence Project in New York. And... Within days, it became clear to me there was this emerging movement from Eliel's efforts, but also from the sister of Laylene Melania Brown, her efforts. And then, of course, this vast community that mourned her death. And it's so important for us to tell this story because... We're having a conversation around state violence that we often don't discuss, and and neglect in particular of someone like Laylene. She had epilepsy and schizophrenia, and so being held in solitary confinement, which happened after she was already held on a $500 bail that her family did not know about, after already experiencing uh, harassment and arrest around sex work, from New York Police Department officers. Um, she was held in solitary confinement at a point. And the UN says that that is torture. And so it's important for us to grapple with the literal torture that is happening to folks on the inside, especially Black folks, especially trans folks, especially women. And so Laylene's story gets at the heart of the issues with these systems of oppression. But we also have the opportunity to do something different with this true crime format that historically has been very exploitative. We get a chance to flesh out the rich uh, environment that Layleen came from, whether it was her chosen family, um, including her mom, Celis and her brother, Solomon, but also her chosen family, Um, She had a community mother, but she also had the House of Extravaganza. So we get a bit of the ballroom culture and how that influenced her life. Um, But we also talk about the legacy that came in the wake of her death in Riker's custody. So she became the glue between so many different movements, whether it was the movement to decriminalize sex work in New York State or the movement to halt solitary confinement, or to end bail for folks uh, being held um, pre-trial, right, in these harrowing conditions in Rikers. Um, But also around why there's been so many folks calling to close Rikers Island for years. So Leilene is a lightning rod, and her unfortunate death, really galvanized so many folks and led to some changes to hopefully make it so that there are less folks dealing with the conditions that she did when she was still here
1: well you spoke on a lot of things <laughs> with the podcast which is very very exciting because there's so many questions to that as you know I am sure you know the things that are happening in Atlanta we' we're, we're a lot of the yeah cop city mm-hmm. and then the reopening of Fulton County jails which was one of the worst uh jails in honestly, Georgia history with so many uh, problematic issues. Yeah. So all of these conversations are so important. It keeps coming back around. Unfortunately, I hate that it dies out. It has to have something big to happen again in order to restart this conversation. But it's so important to have things like this podcast as a way to start up educational conversations, but also empathetic conversations. And we've talked about how trashy, I'm going to just to say that, true crime has become because of the exploitive natures and many of the times they just neglect uh, the family altogether or do it without permission or do it like in a way that's so um, horrifying almost like a fantasy storytelling level that just makes it so heartbreaking to hear because you know this is torturing the families once again, but you do an amazing job uh, from what we gather that, you know, including the family, making sure they are part of the story, that they're telling their story as well. Can you kind of talk about uh, how that was working with the family as well as why it is important to do it this way?
3: Yes. I mean, when I was creating the editorial project the Afterlives, the podcast, is based on, I was still at Out Magazine, but I will say, I think that was one of those moments in my career where my community organizing background really gave me the tools to hold court in a way for grieving families like Layleen's. Um, Because I I knew that I wanted to make sure that we did our due diligence, that they were a part of this project that we were creating. And I was able to have some beautiful conversations with her sister, be in community with her sister, um, get her blessing to elevate her story. Because we also don't always see that, you know, when trans folks of color, particularly women, are murdered or killed or die by harrowing means. There have been many cases where the family was not affirming of them and so was not invested in folks knowing more about the story of their slain family member, much less know more about them as a trans person who maybe experienced a hate crime. So that was important. I think it's also just been key to let people know that trans folks aren't waiting to be saved. Like, we're coming up with the solutions every day, along with our allies, the folks that love us, our comrades, and on and on. And so that's also been something important for me as well, to elevate the activists, the organizers, the cultural creators who are trying to shift these dynamics in their various fields and industries. And I have to shout out the phenomenal team at iHeartMedia, of course, which we know is fam here. Um, the Outspoken Network, my uh, homie um, in this work, Jay Brunson, executive producer for the Outspoken Network, has really been um, such a support and and encourager. And then, of course, the School of Humans group as well. So we've, we've had a lot of support, a lot of powerful people um, making this happen. I also got a shout out, you know, who I've been calling my right and left hand, Dylan Hewer, amazing uh, producer, and Joey Pat as well. I mean, they've just, ugh. I mean, they are powerhouses, and I, I just have so much love for them. Um, and then if I may, I mean, Samantha, I, I think your point around Cop City is so key. We have to be having these conversations around law enforcement around the state violence and brutality that happens. I mean, we can't talk about Cop City without talking about Tortuguita, an amazing um, non-binary activist who was murdered by Georgia State troopers last year or earlier this year. It feels like it was last year, but it was earlier this year and really shone a light on not only how trans folks face violence from the state, but also how indigenous folks face violence from the state. And I think that that is such a salient thing for us to be having conversations around the indoctrination that many of us receive and this idea that our governments or our states are inherently benevolent. And that is not true. They are only as benevolent as the leaders we have in office. And this is completely tied to why we need a ceasefire, why we all need to be invested in the liberation of Palestinian folks as well from occupation, and why folks who think that none of this has anything to do with them need to come correct and check again, because all of the violence and the oppression in this world and the domination that happens, it's fed by each other right and so we have to be willing to understand that as well as intersectional feminists right have to be able to understand that too
1: and that's that whole conversation that this is intersectional. Every bit of these different points and every bit of these conflicts are intersectional, mm-hmm. and it does affect everything else. Uh, just recently, Cop City, we've had at least sixty activists being arrested, charged with RICO, yes. which was originally done for honestly in Atlanta, it was done for black gangs. Mm-hmm. Specific is a racist, is a racist rhetoric. I've seen it. I worked in the justice system. I worked in the juvenile justice system. Mm. I've seen what it was for. It's not pretty. And this is what they're doing. And it's on a federal level. So what they yes. are doing is making sure that they are silencing anyone who are activists, literally environmental activists, literally, um, like all of this level. It's not just one thing. It's not just because they don't like cops. Like let's right. just be very clear. And who is being trained at these co- <sighs> at these stations actually do affect what's happening in Gaza and Palestine. So just the intersectional
3: things. Well, let's add one more element there, because when we think about so many of the the mass shootings that are happening, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. E- especially thinking about this person in Maine recently, he was someone who yeah. had been trained by law enforcement, mm-hmm. right? Right. And there's an exchange between Israel and the U.S. around right. law enforcement and the the practices that brutalize our peoples too. Right.
1: I mean, honey, it's deep. It's deep. Like We could talk about School of Americas here in Georgia as well and how they trained a lot of Israeli soldiers. Mm-hmm. We could talk about that, yeah. but we're not gonna. I know. I <laughs> You're know. getting me on my social work level. Don't, <laughs> don't get me there. Okay, oh my, we're going there. So good. But
3: <laughs> there's so much, it's so necessary.
1: Your list and accolades, mm-hmm. girl, you're on all the lists. Like, every time I look up women to talk about, you're on every single one of them. I'm like, son of a, why can't we get her up? <laughs> so, again, this is my fantasy. I'm like, yes, she's on the show. When oh, when Joey brought uh, you up. I was like, yes, please, yes. immediately. Um, but, like, you have done it and seen it all. You have, like, just ran with uh, the amazing things you've done in Atlanta alone. Um, can you kind of talk about your experience from the beginning of your activism to where you are today? I know that's a lot. It's a
3: lot, (laughs) but I'll I'll work on it. Um, Come on, come on, give me some stories. Well, Atlanta, you know, Atlanta, I say, radicalized me. Um, That was where I met Black, queer, and trans community organizers for the first time who were very, very clear in articulating that they were working on all of these systems of oppression at once you didn't have to pick and choose in some of the ways that I, I kind of felt like I had to, especially in college, right? I felt like I either had to be in the LGBTQ student groups or be, be in the Black student groups. I couldn't be in both. But in Atlanta, people brought it all together. We're very aware of the history of movements. Um, I think about different groups like Sister Song, um, which is at the front lines of reproductive justice efforts. I think about Song um, which is also Southerners on New Ground, which does phenomenal work across different um, axes of oppression. But my political home till today is Solutions Not Punishments Collaborative, um, with the amazing Tony Michelle Williams at the helm. Now, um, when I first met them, I was an intern, so I would leave my ha- How Stuff Works. Job and then go do community organizing with um, Solutions Not Punishments Collaborative. And so we were doing work around um, the police profiling of particularly Black and Brown trans sex workers in Atlanta at that time. Eventually, I moved into doing more national work, which came with working at Transgender Law Center with some phenomenal folks. I started a project called Black Trans Circles, which focuses on the healing uh, justice components for what I consider to be the survivors that we don't acknowledge, which are the Black trans women who are left behind in communities when a murder happens and no real interventions are made. So that was a powerful project to work on. And then, of course, my activism dovetailed with working at Out Magazine. And I know that folks are like, well, how, right? But there's such an important, place for the cultural organizer, which I think is at the core of the work that I do. Um, So even in my podcast work, you know, to be talking about these systems of oppression that marginalized folks face on this level, that is cultural organizing for me because I believe we can get political education out. We can also galvanize even more folks to be invested in dismantling some of these systems. So that's a lot of my work. I consult with GLAD, and we also do um, newsroom presentations and interventions around how to cover LGBTQ issues so that, because we know that our, again, our media landscape is not inherently benevolent. You know, we got the New York Times out here being a mess on so many different things as an institution. Right. But of course, there are powerful folks even within that institution that are trying to course correct and and keep uh, communities on the margins articulated in the ways that we deserve. So this is this is just a snapshot of the work. That I do and have done. Um, And I'm excited for what's next. I I feel like there's a new era emerging around me.
1: You know, I forget you're so young. I say you're young (laughs) because you're significantly younger than me. But I'm like, God, she's done all of this. What have I done? I make that. Oh
3: no! Okay. I did good today. <laughs> what do you mean? You speak truth to power every week. <laughs> I
1: talk about my dog a lot, so that's, that's well, what I do. You know, know.
3: that's what I that's do. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of me. Joy um, is necessary.
1: <laughs> true. Speaking of, because I think, uh, like like I said, my previous field was social work, and um, I still. Have a lot of people a part of it um, that still work in that field as well as I still dabble. <laughs> I'll say dabble. come on, dabble. Um, <laughs> but how do you find that balance of trying to be transparent and and sharing your stories and your experiences to also making sure that yourself you're preserving yourself and your sanity and in your spirit and your joy as well as protecting the fact that yes you're willing to share, but you you do not owe people
3: your story. Like how Mm. do you find that
1: balance?
3: I mean, I talked about this the other day when I was in conversation with Laverne Cox. Um not to name drop, but we were (laughs) (laughs) I was like, no
0: big, no big
1: (laughs) Everybody you've interviewed (laughs) with recently were like, oh, damn. (laughs) They're famous. (laughs) I
3: know. But I mean, I I think (laughs) about this kind of accountability circle. That's kind of the language I was using that I have, you know, whether it's my family, my mom, my sister, my brother, or um, my chosen family, my sisters like Tony, Michelle Williams, Aria Saeed, my friend Chris. Uh, Guitarelli and so many others, right? They are a part of this circle that um, I can just be unruly and messy with, right? And kind of uh, be held accountable to my values around authenticity, vulnerability, showing up for community and on and on. So that is key, but it's also healing to be able to vent about the world. Mm-hmm. So friendship mm-hmm. is so key, that, that also has to be at the heart of all of our feminist discussions as well. You know, um, that love isn't just, love is important. You know, I, it's not necessarily this, like, you gotta be a bride kind of thing in this particular way. Love is so much more than that, whether it's romantic, whether it's platonic and on and on, you know, so I, I think that that part is key for us to reclaim as feminists love on our own terms, but also, it's building in space and grace, you know? So I'm lucky to have a team now who supports me and making sure I'm not too stretched thin. Even though I think to other folks, I always am here and there and everywhere, but I do have my moments to breathe. I have my moments to nap. CrossFit keeps me grounded. I love it. I'm still sore from the other day, honey. Um, <laughs> I love a good walk. I love a good massage. I love good music. I love good podcasts like Smenti. Ding ding ding. <laughs> so I build in space for that. I play Fortnite when I need oh, to. Do you? I do oh, Fortnite. Okay. Sometimes Unexpected. Call of Duty. It's a lot, but sometimes. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm excited for the next generation of the Sims.
1: Is that still going? Is that a still thing? That's how I see
3: you just you just shaded. <laughs> I'm sure a segment of I'm your sorry. audience. I'm
1: sorry.
3: <laughs> but that's on you. That is.
1: No, it's true. That, yeah, that,
3: that's they right. know. They
1: know, know. my my uh, <laughs> online play is none, none. But I do phone <laughs> games in the story.
3: But yeah, so I mean, it, it's those things, and it's also just the little boring things, you know. Like, yeah. Sometimes I try to find the ease in laundry when I'm not like you know, short on time or being able to have a slow day or be able to go to my bodega and they know my order, you know, finding those little moments of liberation that we can bake into our everyday lives is so key.
0: I love that. And that—that that is one of the things I love about um, your work uh, is that you do, you're very open about, because I think a lot of us have anxiety about and we're not on the same level as you, but about being an activist and when you're like in that space and people are like constantly judging you and are you not perfect and you didn't do this right or you didn't do that right. And you've just been very open about that, which I think is amazing because I I feel like that scares people away from Mm -hmm. they want to help, they want to do work, and they should be, um, but they get scared because they can't be perfect and no one is perfect.
3: Um, (laughs) They aren't. Seriously. You're absolutely right. I mean, the the perfection piece is hard for a lot of us yeah but the beauty is the beauty is in the the hiccups it's in the awkwardness it's in the anxieties you know I love when somebody is like I'm anxious like just being able to name it <laughs> well <laughs> it's so it's so refreshing because we're told to hide those things you know
0: it it is it really is And uh, you mentioned earlier that you feel like you're, like, on the precipice of something. Do you have anything else on the horizon that you're excited about? What else do you want, Annie? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, no one's perfect. Do more stuff.
1: (laughs) We're trying to wait for you to say you're coming back to Atlanta and hanging with us on the regular. That's what we really want. You
3: do have. have a tour. I do have a tour. You do have a tour. I do have a tour. So please check me out on the tour. Um, I'm going to several, uh, stops from D.C. to Atlanta, of course, Athens, Georgia, Augusta, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Baltimore, or Baltimore, as they (laughs) say, Philly, (laughs) Massachusetts, that's almost everywhere, I think I'm blanking on somewhere, (laughs) but... Minneapolis. (laughs) Minneapolis. <laughs> all places. There's a lot. And then there will be a second leg starting in January 2024. So I have a little holiday break.
1: Nice. Your new
3: podcast has just released. New podcast just released, Afterlives. Um, it's c- chronicling the story of Leileen Polanco and her legacy. Um, it is out on all platforms. Um, and so proud of that. And then there's another podcast forthcoming called Queer Chronicles in January 2024, which will follow the lives of queer and trans youth living in political battleground states in the US. So, yeah,
0: yeah. And, uh, the as we record this, the first episode of Afterlives came out, and then we listened to it, and it's so good. Oh, you did such a good job of like painting. A very intimate, empathetic podcast. We're like weaving together all of these pieces, and it was really beautiful. So I'm very excited um, and nervous because the story,
3: but <laughs> excited to hear. I know rest. it's it's a lot. It's a lot, but you know our our team has been so intentional. Yeah, and I shouted out uh, some of our producers. I have to shout out Aaron Edwards and Julia Furlan on the story support. Shout out Virginia Prescott. So, I I could go on and on. So many folks, of course, at iHeart. Noel Brown, Michael Alderjune on production. Daisy uh, makes radio is her moniker um, on sound. Wazzy Murray, one of my dear friends from Movement who acted as composer and giving us the soundscapes that really drew it all together. So, and, and y'all know this, right? It, it really is a collective effort to get out one episode of anything.
0: <laughs> it really is. It really, really is. And I'm glad that as a podcast uh, industry, we've moved away from pretending that it isn't. Because <laughs> we yes. kind of used to pretend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, we'll just say it was just this person. No. No. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Yes, well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time, for being here. We I hope that we get to see you in Atlanta. You're like our best friend now. Oh, I hope you don't mind. Well,
3: come out.
1: Please. I got one name checked off my dream list, so thank you for that.
3: Of yes. course, and I'm always here. Just look over your shoulder, honey. Okay.
0: <laughs> I love it. You are welcome back okay. Anytime. Uh, where can the good listeners find you?
3: Yes, well, you can find out about all of these projects at RaquelWillis.com, including the tour. Um, and of course, follow Afterlives.pod on IG, but you can also just find Afterlives wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Yes, and get the book. The book get is the out book. now, yes. The
3: book, book, book is out now, yes.
0: Yes, the risk it takes to bloom. Go check it out. It's amazing. Go check out the podcast. It's amazing. You're amazing. Thanks for coming. (laughs) We loved having you. Thank you. And if you would like to contact us listeners, you can. Our email is stephaniamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram and TikTok at Stuff never Told You. We have a public store and we have a book that you can get wherever you get your books. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina, our executive producer, Maya, and our contributor, Joey, who was the associate producer on Afterlife. So go check that out. That's another reason to go check it out. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated.
2: every week say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote
3: what kind of fun is waiting for you at Kings Island the holy
2: cow we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun the make a splash all summer kind of fun the I can't believe
3: I ate that whole funnel cake let's get another kind of fun but most importantly at Kings Island you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun
2: Don't wait to start your fun season. Kings Island is now open on weekends.